Um, and it was at a time where I was told to my face, but also that was the atmosphere that we don't need an enemy anymore because we have imaging. And this was a very frustrating thing for me. And I went to, um, I was giving a talk at Oxford, and there's um, um, Tim Behrens and um, Matthew Rushworth in the front row, and they're asking all these questions about it, and the paper had like literally just come out while I was on the plane going over, right? Like it just literally came out. Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Classically trained anatomists are an endangered species on the brink of extinction. In 1974, Paul Lauterbohr changed history by publishing the first picture of a living animal, a clam, using a technique he called zoochomatography. The technique, which was later referred to as NMR or MRI imaging, changed medical practice for the good. In many fields such as functional neurosurgery, clinicians were soon after that able to see, without opening the skull, the anatomy of the patients they planned to treat. Before the advent of MR imaging in medicine, functional neurosurgery teams often comprised of an anatomist. For instance, as we discussed in the first episode of this podcast, the Freiburg School of Stereotaxy consisted of Traugott Richard and Fritz Mundinger, the two neurosurgeons, who tightly collaborated with Rolf Hassler, the neuropathologist and anatomist. But when clinicians were able to see for themselves, they thought they don't need anatomists anymore. Suzanne Haber is one of the last classically trained anatomists and, as you have heard, was told to her face that anatomy wasn't needed anymore. By now, it has become clear how limited imaging is when it comes to defining anatomy and the need for anatomists is huge. But few are being trained, as Suzanne mentions. Not many labs like hers exist anymore. Suzanne is professor at the University of Rochester and also has a lab here at Harvard at the McLean Hospital, where we met and recorded the interview. Critical to you, listeners of this podcast, Suzanne is not only an anatomist, but one particularly interested in deep brain stimulation and has published many seminal works that are crucial to our field. She leads a Conti Center for Research in Obsessive Compulsive Disorder and has recently focused on the Zona Inserter and its potential significance as a deep brain stimulation target. There is much the imaging field needs to learn, and I am 100% convinced we should continue to collaborate with anatomists in our field, even if, and even more so if, the quality of neuroimaging should further improve. So to break the ice, before we get um, into the science part, I often ask about hobbies or things that you would do if you're not invested in academia. Any Anything or like being things you do. Yeah, so it's summertime now and um, one of the my biggest hobbies is gardening um, and we have a very large garden uh, which I just love to kind of putter around in, big vegetable garden and some wonderful flowers and plants and yeah, that's really great that's and during great. the winter when we don't have that I have a rather large collection of orchids in the oh, house wow. which I um, 
kind of pamper a little, but the hidden secret to orchids is, of course, that you shouldn't pamper them. You should ignore them. Oh, I Everyone, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody <laughs> wants to know, oh, you know, how do you do so well with your orchids? Yeah. They keep blooming, blah, blah, blah. And I think, like, yeah, it's because I don't fuss over them. Okay. Uh, and they kind of like to dry out, and they like to, yeah, so... But that's those are two things that I like a lot. I guess they're in the same category. Um, and I like to sew. I have couple grandkids so I enjoy making things for them and Great. for you know and for others so that's another wintertime activity. Do they live close by to you? Yeah so we're in Rochester New York as you know um, one daughter lives in Cambridge where uh, who I see quite a lot because of course I have an appointment at McLean yeah. uh, so I spend a lot of time with her and my granddaughter Io um, and then the other daughter lives in New York City uh, in Washington Heights, okay. and I spend some time with her. So as well. essentially, you're between, kind of between the two daughters. Then, if you have the two um, appointments between Rochester and and here, and yeah, yeah, sort of, it's a driving triangle. Yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> it's nice. Got it. So, okay, um, yeah, we are here at the McLean um, Hospital campus. Uh, first time I've been here. Really beautiful. So, um, really cool to see you in person here in Boston. Um, to pivot to the main topic, um, which is academia and your work in science, um, I often ask about key mentors in your career, also turning points that led to where you are now. Yeah, so key mentors, um, I'd have to go back to my graduate work um, with David Hamburg, who uh, was a, um, an amazing man. He had a lot of uh, insight and foresight into um, developing programs and helping people. Uh, he was a psychiatrist and a very well-known one. And um, he um, took me into his fold at, at Stanford. And I was very determined to study the uh, low-dose effects of amphetamine on social behavior of monkeys. And this was my thesis. Oh. And yeah, wasn't anatomy. And I was always driven by the idea of, you know, why do people behave the way they do and abnormalities in behavior, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and so amphetamine at the time, and I perhaps now still, was a model of schizophrenia because mm -hmm. the psychosis that it um, developed that people who were, you know, had overdosed um, would develop a psychosis that was often misdiagnosis schizophrenia. I mean, that's a very, very long time ago, but it still, you know, produces behavioral effects that are interesting. And so I looked at the, you know, social environment, the low-dose effects of the, yeah. um, monkeys. And, and so in terms of a, a mentor, I mean, he was just supportive of really whatever you wanted to do. He was okay. one of those people that allowed you to find your own way. And so that was, that was fantastic. Um, I would then, I then did a postdoc at Minnesota, I'll skip over that, um, and then move on to the second postdoc, which was at MIT with Wally Nauda. At the time I left graduate school, I was trying to make the decision whether I wanted to continue in behavior or whether I wanted to become an anatomist. And one of the people who really um, uh, had an impact on my life was a guy named Stan Watson, who's um, was a psychiatrist and was working in the lab. When Dave Hamburg left, I worked in Jack Barkus's lab, 
and uh, Stan worked there, and he was trying to figure out ways, it was really a long time ago, how to visualize the dopamine system, and you know, the fluorescence technique was out there, and I was just became, you know, enthralled looking in the microscope. It just was another world, it's like I suppose, mm -hmm. You know, astronomers look up in the sky and they just kind of can stare forever. And I realized yeah. that I really enjoyed that so much. So then I was torn: should I become an anatomist or behavior person? And I chose the anatomy route and um, worked with Wally Nauda, who was um, a very interesting mentor. I mean, he was just so knowledgeable; it was fantastic. Was he already quite famous at the time? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 So, so he maybe for the listeners. I was his uh, last postdoc. Your last postdoc. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe for the listeners who would not be familiar with him, I, I, I've, what I read is he's considered one of the founders of the field of neuroscience. He's also a founder and president of the SFN and invented the silver staining method. Right. That's probably right. the, what he's right. most famous for. Right. So, did you also work with that technique, or was that even? No, because because by the time so it's a long history about yeah. tracing studies, um, because that's what I do now. So I'll just give you a five minute history yeah. of that. Um, so as you know, the cell stains and the myelin degeneration stains were the first way to try to think about circuitry in the brain, mm -hmm. and um, then um, so that was really and, and so the you know hundred plus years ago people really um, scientists really had the time to ponder the material mm -hmm. something that's a luxury today we have no time to do that but they really could look under the microscope for hours and and think about what they saw um, and that was very effective in a lot of the fundamental things we know about circuitry are still um, dating back from that time. Um, but then came these ways of, you know, like, okay, uh, myelin degeneration only degenerates, shows you the myelin, right? So sure. it's not really the axon, it's the myelin. And so what about thinly myelinated or non-myelinated fibers? It doesn't t give you the terminal fields, it doesn't give you the areas of origin, and so on and so forth. So people were working on ways to do that, and one of Nauda's, um, and people were working very hard, one of Nauda's contribution was the silver technique, which allowed um, one to visualize thin, um, thinly myelinated and unmyelinated um, fibers. Yeah. But that technique didn't really last long because very soon after that it was replaced with the tracers that we use now. Okay. So that only was, you know, hot, if you will, for a little while. I um, mm -hmm. But I think his contribution, it's not just so much that, but you know, his contribution really was thinking about the problem of, of understanding the circuits and really wanting to find a way to follow those fibers from the origin to the terminal fields. Yes. And that, you know, was really in the 1950s, 60s. 50s, 60s, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's always good well, to... 60s, I, no, I shouldn't okay. say 50s, 60s, yeah. 70s, yeah. And the traces that came up, um, you did work with them already back then. Was that, that was always in the primate, right? Um, yeah. yeah, well, I did, when I was with Nauda, I actually worked in the, in the, in the rodent. Okay. Um, so during that postdoctoral period, um, we studied the, um, the connections in the rodent. Now, right before I was there, there was another great neuroanatomist, Leonard Heimer, mm -hmm. who really set the stage for our understanding what the nucleus accumbens was, and that the nucleus accumbens yeah. was actually part of the striatum. And he had used many of these techniques to identify 
this area now that we all know of as the ventral pallidum. So when I came on the scene, I was really interested in understanding um, what the ventral pallidum, where that actually predict, uh, projected. So yeah. Leonard had, again, because these old anatomists had really the luxury of time and, and really had been thinking about the brain for so long, he had already predicted that the nucleus accumbens was part of the striatum and it projected to an area that was underneath the anterior commissure that he predicted would be the pallidum. Hmm. And he predicted that the pallidum would project to the thalamus, right? So it would be part of the, the basal, the ventral basal ganglia yeah. loop. So he's the one who really did that. And so when I got there, I really wanted to do the anatomy that actually, um, you know, showed that. So Really cool. So you mentioned the, the nucleus accumbens and also amphetamine, your first PhD work. Um, and so, so it, it always seems to me you, you did some things in the motor system, but I think you're kind of drawn to the striatum palate, you know, yeah. um, and psychiatric or um, yeah. associative limbic system to some degree. Yeah, I never way. really did that. I mean, it's the only reason that I'd be associated with the motor system is because the basal ganglia is above. But I yeah. always was interested in okay. the non-motor part yeah. of it, the and limbic why, and the Why cognitive. is that? Was there any? Yeah, because it just it, it goes right back to what I was drawn to in the first place, yeah. mental health. Mental health. And okay. um, how you explain things, which is where I'm still, <laughs> many, many years later, how do you explain that people, on the one hand, rationally know that drugs are not good for them, or yeah. that in OCD your ritual is not going to be productive, yeah. but you can't stop doing it. Mm. So that kind of thing has always been very... Um, intriguing to yeah. me. Yeah, sounds great. So, a big jump in time, but we'll, we'll also go, go back in time again, but, but your more, more recent work, I think one, one key thing that, um, there's so many things that make your work interesting, but I think for the imaging field, what makes your, your work interesting is that you, you're one of the few people that actually compare Tracer with um, non-invasive non imaging, like tractography, diffusion-based tractography study, and I think one of your key partners in crime, there are many others, but is Anastasia Yendiki, um, who is the author of the Tracula software, which is part of FreeSurfer, and she's also doing a lot of other things, often with you. Um, so together, I think the two of you, probably with others, you also set up the Iron, Iron Track Challenge um, to look at that, right? Can you tell us a bit what that is? Yeah, so again, um, if you don't mind me going back in history, you can Please put do. all of yeah. that out. But um, I had decided to spend a little bit of time at Mass General, um, and I, I wanted to uh, see what was going on at MGH. And um, so got arranged by various people I knew and so on, then I would come and have a visiting appointment there. And one of the things that I was always very interested in is, is circuitry. You know, yeah. if I felt like, okay, if we understood how the brain was wired together, we would really understand disease. Well, of course, that was naive. But I still believe that we'll, you know, ha have a better idea about yeah. how the brain is put together. And I had been um, frustrated, um, as many people are in basic science, when... Uh, they see these imaging papers come out and they make statements about circuitry or function or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it was at a time where I was told 
to my face, but also that was the atmosphere that an we don't need anatomy anymore because mm -hmm. we have imaging. And this was a very frustrating thing for me. Um, and uh, so I had many, many papers. I would get a paper with a new track, new pathway, and I'd say, oh, that's really pretty, it's very lovely, but actually that track doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, it was frustrating. And so at one point I thought, like, okay, I'm not going to fight this. You know, diffusion is just way, way too popular. Mm. Um, yeah. And us anatomists, you know, like three of us in the world, maybe I'm just <laughs> making that up. But um, so I'm going to have to join them. Yeah. So I had a paper, uh, we had a paper called the Path, we, I called it the Pathways paper. It was with Lehman and all. It was the first pa yeah. pa paper, right? And I went to, um, I was giving a talk at Oxford. And I'm sitting there, and I'm giving this talk, and there's um, um, Tim Behrens mm -hmm. and uh, Matthew Rushworth in the front row, and they're asking all these questions about it, and the paper had, like, literally just come out while I was on the plane going over, okay. right? Like, it just literally came out, and or the day before, something like that. And I thought, like... They know this paper way too well. Yeah. <laughs> they must have reviewed it. And so, and um, anyway, so we had lunch, and it, it was just wonderful because yeah. they were just so interested in trying to figure out how pathways really. And I and I was just so um, happy about that that yeah. people really wanted to do that. So then I went to MGH, and Anastasia was another person like that. So I, I had interviewed or interviewed, not interviewed, but you know, set appointments with many, many people at, at MGH, and yeah. we just clicked. And um, you know, she was really interested in it, and so it's been you know, it's been a great journey with her. Um, uh, trying to exactly do that. Yeah. So the whole goal is to take tracing and use the tracing as the so-called gold standard for understanding what tractography can and cannot tell us. Yeah. And that was the origin for the um, iron, iron track. So it's an open data set where people can test their diffusion tractography algorithms and then they hand in solutions and you... Right. So we first gave them the first thing they got was actually the tracing. Okay. They got actually the tracing and then the seed, and then they had to match the tracing with the seed. Okay. And they develop an algorithm to do that. Okay. So now they've got what they're supposed to match. Then the challenge then is to give them a seed somewhere else. Yeah. And um, the interesting thing about that was that they didn't do as well. They didn't sure. do that well. Yeah. And the 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 thing I mean the, the th and so now she has a grant which which I'm part of also, which is asking the question, you know. It depends on where you're coming from, you know. It depends yeah. on where that seed is in the cortex. There are different rules in terms of how one gets to their terminal field, yeah. depending on what they have to navigate through. So um, now we're trying to do that from different perspectives. Sounds great. So I've, I think I've heard you mention a few times um, in talks and, and um, different occasions that probabilistic tractography was superior to deterministic tractography as maybe one take home. Maybe to play devil's advocate, um, I, I sometimes <coughs> think that this choice and the related choices could be seen as a typical bias-variance problem. You know, you, you get more tracks and maybe also the right track with pro probabilistic, but then would you also get more false positives? So 
you know, maybe it's more sensitive, but would you also get more specificity? Yeah, so yeah, I do. Yeah, so I I don't actually know the answer to yeah. that. I think that that's really um, very um, very possible. Mm. The reason we came to that conclusion is that um, there was a graduate student that we shared, uh, and that is also a published paper. I think it's in um, um, Neuroimage. Um, yeah, so. Uh, in that paper, what we did was we looked at all the different ways. We had this, you know, ground truth pathways, yeah. and then we had an animal that was, of course, that, that animal had been scanned as yeah. well, yeah. and tried all kinds of different systems on it, and just yeah. found that the probabilistic Worked best. was the one that came the closest yeah. with the, the most accurate um, uh, Identification, yeah. but it may be that in certain areas that's not true. You know, it really, true, yeah, it just yeah, yeah. really depends. I think, I think the thing that we found was that depending on where you are in the brain. I mean, one of the things that we thought about quite a lot is that maybe one of the mistakes we make in tractography is that we scan the individual equally everywhere in the brain. Mm -hmm. And there's some places where tractography has no trouble, right? It's just like a, you know, so is it possible to just, you know, focus the scans, um, you know, take a scan, a general scan, but then focus in on areas in which um, a lot of fibers are coming in and they're turning and they're twisting and doing whatever, um, and then getting out the other end. Those are where you have the that's trouble. The so maybe yeah. that's the place that we need to just kind of focus those. And then when it gets in the corpus callosum, I mean, it's just going to yeah. go in the corpus callosum. I mean, we know where it is. Great idea, like a multi-resolution. Yeah, exactly. Kind of yeah, yeah um, exactly. Brainstem or so. Yeah. Um, cool. So you've, you've mentioned the Lehman paper that was, I think, two, 2011 in Journal of Neuroscience, and there was maybe... Um, a, six, uh, a second paper, 2018, Safadi et al., same journal, that is right. a bit in the same um, concept where you looked at the ALIC and related systems in the two across the two. Is it even possible to summarize some of the findings in a podcast like this? Yeah, I think the main thing is that um, fibers from cortex, regardless of where they are, um, are going to enter the white matter in a certain way, and that's that certain way is just because of the constraints of the brain. Yeah. And then they travel through the brain to their terminals, and the ex an example is the ALEC, the anterior limb of the internal capsule. Yeah. Um, and they organize themselves in the capsule, and this is true for some other fiber bundles like the corpus callosum, in a way that makes sense from where they're coming from and where they're going. Yeah. And so the goal of those two papers were, really was to ask the question, are there rules Hmm. the fibers used to get to where they're going yeah. that are going to be translatable into the human. The monkey brain is much smaller, much less evolved. Obviously, the cortex is tiny compared to the human yeah. brain. But some of the constraints are the same. It still isn't going to, the fibers aren't going to go through the ventricles. They're not going to go through sure. parts of the striatum that, and so on and so forth. So they have to get to where they're going with similar constraints. And so I think the main thing about those papers were was that there are logical rules where fib that fibers use to get to where they're going. Yeah. And moreover, within a pathway, you know, within a bundle, the organization can be predicted based on where they are. So, for yeah. example, in the ALEC, which I think was very helpful, if, you, if you're 
if you live in the dorsal part of the cortex, your fibers will be dorsal to the ones that are in the ventral part yeah. of the cortex. It's a simple rule, but it helps organize how they are within the capsule. Yeah. So I think that I think both of those papers were helped people look at these big white matter bundles and say, okay, there's an organization within yeah. it. Great. And then I guess one, uh, a second uh, or third really key paper, landmark, landmark paper for the DBS field is the Haynes and Haber, the Haynes and Haber STN paper um, that uh, I think everybody in the field would know um, uh, because it, it, it's really the gold standard, at least from modern times, I would say that um, where you parcelated the STN. Um, and you, you did show segregated loops. So um, I also interviewed Maylon DeLong on the podcast, and he mentioned that their basal ganglia circuit model was key to setting up these parallel loops um, in the first place. Um, did, did their work influence your thinking that may have led to this Haynes and Haber paper, or was it a um, was that important, or was that a whole different time? Or? Well, you know, it was influential because I didn't I didn't agree with it, <laughs> and I still don't agree with it. I think that there's a general topography that's mm -hmm. definitely true. There's areas, you know, the motor striatum and the motor, uh, and then there's a limbic um, piece and a cognitive piece. All of that is true. They're general, but they're not strictly segregated. Yeah. There's a huge amount of convergence, and um, and that's true in the STN too. So uh, obviously, if you're in the um, anterior medial where you're stimulating for OCD, you're probably not going to be in the motor area. Yeah. But you're not going to be able to differentiate between anterior cingulate and dorsal medial um, prefrontal cortex. You know, yeah. those areas are just going to be converging in that region. And the same is true with the striatum. You know, the idea that you've got. Um, a connection from dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex that's not interacting with a connection from ventral lateral prefrontal cortex and striatum, I don't think it's going to be, well, it isn't true. So there's just a huge amount of convergence. Yeah. Um, so I think you have both things happening. You have a general topography, yeah. but a huge amount of convergence. Uh, so both parallel it. circuits and funnel, right? I, I don't even, I don't, I mean, I don't particularly like the idea of parallel circuits okay. because um, there's no doubt that M1 fibers, where people do a lot of work, are in their own world. And the same is true with area 25. Okay. Right? So there are this polar areas of the striatum and the basal ganglia are the most... Uh, segregated from other areas. So the shell of the nucleus accumbens and the really dorsal lateral caudal part of the striatum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in between, um, you just have... So yeah. actually, uh, you know, the I think a classic paper that was done by Charlie Wilson in, 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 um, in rodents where he did the very heroic experiments of filling individual cells in the cortex and following the axons into the striatum. Mm -hmm. And what he found was that an individual cortical um, neuron innervates up to 17% of the striatum. Okay? Okay, so it well. arborizes huge, and each one of those collaterals only contacts very minimally each cell. So it kind of goes popping from one to another and then their collaterals. And if you look at his drawings, 
you know, they're just very beautiful drawings. You see mm-hmm. how much it spreads. It's a single cell. Wow. Yeah. So to me, that right away argues against parallel segregated processing. And I think where it's very well described as well, the same thing is the dopaminergic neurons. They even span oh, yeah, yeah. broader patches, right? Exactly. Where, where if, they, if their role would be to say, yes, do that again in, in simple terms, they would say that to the nearly the whole stratum or a big, big part of the stratum. Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, makes sense. That's interesting. So, um, I, I mean, it's certainly, there is a gradient, right? I guess you yeah. would agree with that, right? But it, would. It, would, um, it would, there's a lot of convergence and maybe that is even the function of the whole thing, right? To, to Yeah, well, I think it is. I think what we find also is that the, and I mean, everybody knows that the straight, cortical striatal projection is very patchy, right? Mm. And those patches don't necessarily stay in the same general geographic region so you'll find a patch that's like somewhere else and you're thinking well what is it doing there if if it's really this gradient then you would expect you know like a rainbow to keep changing evenly but it doesn't because you've got these patches innervating areas that you're really surprised um, that it is so the other thing is that within cortex I can give you the example of anterior cingulate which is a very large area and um, we found that there's an area that is kind of hub-like within the anterior cingulate, and that area projects to the striatum in a way that gives you patches everywhere. Mm. So not all cortical areas really um, are are not the same in terms of how they innervate the striatum. They don't, you know, yeah. yeah. Very interesting, I I think I had a follow-up question on the STN work because we talked about the Haynes and Haber um, paper. I, I read I, uh, in, in some reports that the STN <laughs> would receive input from, from almost the entire frontal cortex. But do you think that's true, first of all? And then probably there's more projections from some regions versus others, right? Because in your paper, I think you selected five or so or six, six regions. Would you think the other... Is that a general rule that everything in the frontal cortex projects to the SDN? Yeah, I think I think it does. I think what happens, and we showed in the paper to some extent, but I think that to, that the medial part really merges with the lateral hypothalamus in a way. So a lot of the you know anterior cingulate in the yeah, you showed that for the VMPFC and OFC projections that they are mm-hmm. in this ventral yeah cusp of the STN, yeah. right? Yeah. That you would still count as STN, if I understand correctly, or part yeah. of it? Yeah, well, the reason, I mean, it's a very nebulous area, and yeah. it's an area that had been described prior to us. Dejerian described this in the 19, oh, whatever, I, well, yeah, or whatever, he, yeah. he, when he wrote his, um, his very famous um, atlases. And he also describes that that area mm-hmm. is... Um, should be concluded with the STN. Um, Cellular-wise, it has this mix of things. The reason we um, included it is because the ventral pallidum projects there. I see. Mm -hmm. And we showed that in a previous paper in the monkey. So the ventral pallidum really has a very strong projection, which continues into that lateral, that little cone region of the lateral hypothalamus. Interesting. So, you know, it depends on what you want to call the basal ganglion, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Larry Swanson, I think, has this concept where 
all of the cell nuclei would be called either striatum or pallidum. Yeah. You can, can you know, divide, divide them into these two functions of um, doing inhibition and disinhibition, I think. That's his, his like, um, what do you right. think of that? Like, would you, would you agree that maybe everything is, you know, every cell um, nucleus is, is kind of part of either being an, a pallidum or a striatum, or could that be a possibility? Well, I mean, I think that's going a little too far because the morphology yeah. of the cells are different. You know, I mean, I if you go back to how you define a palatal cell, you know, the, the, and, and a hypothalamic cell, and a, yeah. you know, whatever, you you you've got very different morphologies there. So, so for, so so I think in the Swanson work, the hypothalamus would be separate. So so that would be um, also part of that canonical yeah. circuit, but but all other cells like for example lateral septum I think would be lateral medial septum would would, would be a pair of striatum and, and, and pallidum as well to him I think in his uh, 2000 paper so yeah <laughs> we, we leave it at could be I guess or, or yeah. yeah okay so um, great so so one thing um, that struck as when we when we studied the Haynes and Harper paper in, in our lab in the Journal Club, um, was that all of the projections are based, and of course that's natural if you know about it, but uh, are based on a single macaque, right? I think you had 43 animals, five of them had two injections, so a total of 48 injections. So so um, I think then one of these looped often is from one animal, right? That like if you would, for example, the OFC projection, that was one. One animal. Is that correct, or did I understand that? So, yeah. So, oh, right. So we inject an animal, and yeah. then we trace it out. Yeah. That's correct. But we have many injections in the OC, OFC. I see. In different animals. In so, different in you know, of course, we're illustrating it with illustrating one animal one. with one yeah. animal per area. But we have. Well, I don't know how many we have now. Uh, I mean, at that time, but not, I mean, we've got, I think it's something like 150 injections in, yeah. in cortex. Yeah. So. So you would know from other that it would replicate. You, you probably. Oh yeah, have a lot yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 really yeah. not. That's really not an issue. I mean, if yeah. you, there's there are many many injections to show. The same thing. The okay. same thing. Yeah. Very cool. So. Um, Going back to the imaging world with Cameron McIntyre alongside um, three other famous anatomists together with you, uh, such as Peter Strick, Yolande Smith and Martin Paul, I think, you worked on creating a holographic tractography atlas for the subthalamic and palatal region, um, published in Neuron 2019. And the data we just talked about, I think both from the Haynes and Haber paper, but also from the ALIC um, papers, uh, were really key for building that atlas. Um, so it's 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 an amazing data set, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the effort. Um, so, first of all, any thoughts about that general process? Of can you maybe describe a bit how you created that? It was great fun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just um, they had an amazing system there. This hologram, it's you know altered reality, so you can you see what's going on around you, but you actually are you know in the middle of this brain that's yeah. in three dimension. 
and you see these fibers going through and I think as you know most anatomists they have this sort of 3D world in their head of where things are going and very often it's very difficult to either draw those or explain those yeah. <clears throat> but you have this, uh, this sense in your in your mind and so having this hologram was really really fun because yeah. you would be in the brain and you know they'd have these fibers and it was almost like you know an anatomist dream I'd say no 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 let's take this one and move it over here <laughs> take this one and move it over there and it was it was great you know we could just adjust things the way we see them under the microscope yeah um and so it was it was, it was a wonderful thing to do was there a lot of discussion mm -hmm. like would the four anatomists agree usually or yes no i think uh you know no i think we there was there was a lot of discussion yeah. um but not because people disagreed but because we we're just trying to get all of our perspectives in there. I think the reason that, um, I mean, the nice thing about this was that the four of us really had expertise in different things, yeah. um, in different parts of, um, so we had a basal ganglia person, um, <coughs> Andre, not Andre, um, Martin Paul. Martin, yeah. <laughs> Martin, yeah. Um, uh, you know, it was basal ganglia, we, um, uh, Yolan Smith was basal ganglia, but slightly different area, Peter, mm -hmm. cerebellum, and thalamus, and so on and so forth, and I was basal ganglia, but internal capsule, and SVM, and so it was really nice because, um, because yeah, I, you know, we all shared the love for this, but in slightly different yeah. areas of the brain, so it was good. Yeah. Really cool. And, and uh, I think, I mean, the data set has been made openly available, so that's great, and I think it is one of the, you know, only probably the only data sets that have some of the details that you wouldn't really yeah. see with tractography such as for example the just the hyperdirect axonal collaterals that you would rarely see or not you know you wouldn't be able to reconstruct with tractography so it could be used for and we have used it and, and Cameron has used it for um, you know DBS network mapping deep brain simulation network mapping and in contrast to the diffusion-based connectomes which are full of both false positives and false negatives this atlas is likely free from false positives, if you're right, right? There's no wrong tract in there. Right. But it would still have many false negatives. And what I mean with that is, you know, just tracts you didn't draw in, right? It would oh, still yeah. Have, no, absolutely. Of course, there's more going on, right? And it has gaps and so on. So, I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? Or do you see that building on top of the data set and filling in the gaps continuously could be a good idea or because at, at some point it's, it's really very hard even with you know things that you are doing with Anastasia I think to come to a similar level of detail and accuracy with empirical data but we only have that one atlas now right so it's not possible to I mean there, there are just for example if we're interested in the PPN to STN connections in, in freezing of gate the tract is not in there, so we, we wouldn't be able to see it because it's, it hasn't been drawn in, right? Or, or some other details maybe. In, um, do you see any value in, or is there any, even a plan to continue that work? Well, you know? I think he's writing another, he's uh, writing a renewal, so, cool. um, which um, we're all part of again. Um, Amazing. I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a very skeleton drawing. It's, yeah. it's if you want to stimulate the ALEC, if you want to stimulate the ST end, um, 
it doesn't have a lot of the thalamic fibers that mm-hmm. are going through that area. I don't think it has the um, the H fields. The um, yeah. And, and those are important, especially if you're going to be stimulating. It has the ansa and the fasciculus lenticularis. Right. But yeah, not. I think I agree. Not all the details there. It doesn't yeah. have all. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. have all of them in there. And then maybe maybe final final question on the STN. Um, I I also read that uh, the granular insular cortex projects to the STN, um, but I've only read that in in one source. So I wanted to ask your expert opinion. Do you do you think that's true? Is there a projection from insula to STN? Um, I can answer that um, next week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, my guess is that it would, but we just had a spectacular um, injection in the in the insulate cortex, oh, okay. and so um, you know, just literally hot off the press. And my okay. guess is, I haven't looked, but I can. We can I follow can, up. Great. We could follow up on that, and I can an- answer that. Super. Okay, so um, you had mentioned that it's. Um, or sorry, let's let's go into um, your work on OCD. So I think you have um, quite a bit of grants in OCD, and also interest in OCD, and I, not only OCD, but the whole psychiatric. The, um, diseases that would be also stimulated with the brain simulation and I think um, there's a really important article um, review article in Biopsych from you in 2020 on OCD where you anatomically describe the four targets that would be have been used um, to treat OCD um, any take-home conclusions you want to highlight from that paper yeah so in that paper you know we talked about the four 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 sites I think that there are, there are a couple other sites that I would add to that but you know those were the alic the internal capsule anterior limb of the internal capsule the ventral striatum which are very much the same site really mm-hmm. um, the STN and a brainstem site um, which was targeting the ventral tegmental area and I think the um, the main take home message in terms of the stimulation for um, for therapeutic approaches is that all four sites get similar, some similar package of fibers. Yeah. Um, but having said that, they also might get some different things, mainly where they're based on where the electrode is. The other main point of this was, so for example, the alexite is likely to get all the descending and ascending cortical fibers. Yeah. Okay. And then the um, striatal side is going to get some of those because it's going to capture the internal capsule, but it also will get all the basal ganglia connections. Mm -hmm. Um, The STN side, again, the hyperdirect pathway and the palatal connections and the ventral tegmental area, a number of different fibers that are passing through there. The interesting thing about this is really what else is going through each of those sites. So we Mm. have our focus, we have our lamp post, and the keys we're looking underneath it are the orbital anterior cingulate fiber pathways in basal ganglia. That's what we're looking for. But we're not paying attention to all the other things that are going through there. And that's particularly true in the STN and in the brainstem. There's yeah. just a lot of stuff flowing through there. Those are small areas with many, many different fiber bundles. I think in both of those, you, you're likely to be involving many brainstem regions that you yeah. may, in a very, uh, in a more robust way than you will yeah. in the more anterior targets. And yeah. I think that 
where we can learn from these is to identify for which population of patients, I mean, this is one of the things we're doing for a, a, a separate uh, group, is to develop a database mm-hmm. um, for DBS, yeah. right? So that everybody that contributes will put in their electrodes, their all of the criteria, et cetera, et cetera, outcomes, and so on. And I think once we have a database where we have a population of patients, a large population of patients, that you can divide into symptoms and outcomes, yeah. I think we'll get a better idea about what targets might be better for which populations. Yes. Yeah. It could so 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 it could really be or one could postulate that the general Y box or the the core obsessive compulsive symptoms might um, or it seems like might might have a similar improvement in all of these targets, but then um, maybe some patients with more anxiety, more depression might have a slightly different, uh, like better improvement in this target versus cognitive th- um, flexibility um, issues could be targeted right. in a different one, right? So. I love the idea that to, to have overlapping networks um, that also have shared networks, right, but then differences. That, that's right. really cool. So, yeah, um, that, that, that's already um, super, super nice. We've, we've covered a lot. I, I wanted to ask one, one more general question about anatomy, and you mentioned it before that um, you, were, you said you were told to, to your face that at the time... People didn't need anatomists anymore, but right. they uh, because they had imaging, and I'm totally with you that this is so wrong. But yeah. um, and I always wondered about that um, because I was not around in that time where imaging came around, and it's a bit like, you know, movie uh, TV killed the radio star. Um, people ha- thought they would see everything in the Im- uh, in the MRI, but they would not, right? So, and then I think there was this trough of anatomy, and it seems like now it's gaining momentum again. Would you see it the same way, or? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think that. I think the sad part of that is that during that time we just lost a lot of trainees. They just are not. Yeah, yeah. They're just not trained. Um, okay. And um, I think there is a very big upswing. There's a big upswing for um, a subpopulation of imagers. Not everybody, but who are really interested in knowing what the anatomy underneath it is like yeah. and are not as quick to say well we're in the human and so we're different and so therefore we're right because mm-hmm. we're only in an animal and I think that was a lot of what we had gotten before which is you know we're in a human and so but I mean but even, even post-mortem anatomists were not around anymore right? well yeah so, no, so they haven't been around yeah. for, for, for a very long time and you, yeah. and you could say for example, going back to deep brain simulation in the beginning of that f- era and field, you know, in the maybe 60s, 70s, in, in, in all these schools, there was usually an anatomist in the, in the OR, or yeah. at least part of the team, part of the planning. You know, they um, people like Rolf Hassler, uh, for example, in, in the Freiburg School was really important. He was a key decision maker, um, student of the folks, I think, to, to guide the surgeons and the neurologists, right? So and then imaging came around and people thought they would see everything themselves and wouldn't need the anatomist Im- anymore. But I, but I really think we lost so much, not only training but also knowledge, right? The, all the details. Because oh. if you just look at it in that coarse view of the MRI, and back in the day it was even worse than now. Um, you know, you you see just the rough shapes, right? 
Well, that's right. And I think that very often, you know, that, that is a loss because when you spend a lot of time on the microscope and looking at it the way the old anatomists did, you can look at these images and you can see where the structures are. And I've gotten that many times where people say, how do you know it's there? Mm -hmm. And you know it's there because you've been, you know what it looks like when it emerges, when it doesn't emerge, you know the structures yeah. around it and so on. So you, you can. Um, I think that that part, you know, might be coming back. The people that come to my lab to train are now mostly coming from imaging. Okay, interesting. Um, so they're mostly coming from a place that has done imaging and they want to know the anatomy underneath it. Okay, that's So just, there are not too many of our labs around anymore, but, yeah. but I think that many imagers are now doing, yeah. are doing that. Who are the other ones that, that come to mind? Um, so, so, so we had Katrin Amunds on the podcast as well, um, who has the big brain data set in, in Jülich in Germany, and then I know a young colleague, Annika Alkemade, she's mm -hmm. working with um, Beate Forstmann, right. and I would consider her an anatomist, even, even though she's, she's young. Yeah, right, still, but right, of course. To give other people that, that still do that, where, where people could train. You know, they're mostly in Europe. Okay. <laughs> I have to say they're mostly in Europe. Um, Helen Barbus is still quite active here. Um, she does a little bit of different stuff, but still, I mean, she has yeah. a very, very strong anatomy background. Um, Jeremy Schwaman yeah. is here still. Um, you know, there are still a number of people that have yeah. that uh, that that background. And I guess the, the people that were in that um, McIntyre project would also. Oh yeah, of course, of course, yeah. right, right. Great. Super. So, so, and and then I guess at Rochester you have amassed a vast database of primate tracing stains. You mentioned a few of them, um, and if I remember correctly, I might be wrong, but you were you told me you were in the process of digitizing some of that. Um, uh, where does that stand? Or yeah, so that we've had so much trouble with microscopes, and oh my God, I don't even want to go down there. Yeah. But. Despite that, we have really made some progress, and um, we have, I don't remember how many cases, we must have 20 or so, I mean, out of the hundreds, not that many, it sounds like, but um, that, are, that are digitized for dark field mainly, some for bright field and a few for the Nissel. We're kind of plugging through it. I think we're almost ready to start mm. um, making that publicly available. Cool. I'm just trying to figure out the best, you know, um, platform to platform, do that on, yeah. but I think we're getting quite close to that. Amazing, because I think at some point we had a joint lab meeting together also with the New York groups and you showed some of these um, projections that, and of course some are published as well and I remember one so vividly was a projection site, I don't even know from where, but it was to the thalamus and it, it, it really flashed out these bright dots that were scattered within the thalamus and I, I just realized we would never see that with imaging, right? We, we wouldn't see it in that way. It would always diffuse, you know, not, not in that crystallized and clear-cut way. So it would be an amazing resource to, yeah, to so, have. Yeah. So the thing that gets lost in imaging is that I think people assume, right, that these areas which are very large are kind of one thing. So you mm -hmm. have dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex or area 46 if you want to use Brodman's areas. They're all very large and you have this idea that A goes to B and B goes to C and 
etc., etc. But actually, if you look at the anatomy, when you look at projections, what you really see is this region, this very large region, and up oh, there's the projection, and here's the projection, but nothing in between. So you've got these um, very complicated um, circuitry networks that are yeah. going on that you it's hard to see in imaging. On the other hand, what we have found is that when you're looking at seed-based functional, so just going to seed-based, uh, both functional and diffusion, um, if you know what you're looking for because you know what the anatomy should be, mm. it's it can be remarkably accurate. Okay. And the strongest functional um, connections, I mean others have shown this and we're showing it now too, the strongest functional connection from resting state are actually ones that are hardwired. Okay. So, so the you can yeah. you can you can actually these are the strongest. Yeah. Makes sense. So it does make sense, yeah. but you know it, it it it's helpful because very often people will say, well, we you know it doesn't have to be directly connected, and even though that's technically true, you don't want to use that as an excuse, right? Yeah. True. You you want to be able to say, well, these are and this isn't, and so yeah. this it's not. So why isn't it? What yeah. what? How is it getting there? Makes sense. Um, so, like that. Yeah. Okay, so I've taken a lot of your time already. So to wrap up, maybe just some rapid-fire questions. First one, did you ever have true eureka moments in your career where you thought, oh, now I get it, or this was great, or oh. wins in, in, in science, yeah. successes? Well, I think the one, the one that um, probably might stand out, it's also, I think, one of our most cited papers um, is the spiral um, paper with the cortical, the striatal, cortical, uh, striatal ah, yes. connection yeah. where we showed that the ventral striatum projects, there's a reciprocal connection but there's a non-reciprocal component to it. The non-reciprocal component projects to a more dorsal area, that area has a reciprocal but a non-reciprocal and yeah. it keeps kind of winding its way through as a way in which the emotion can impact on cognition and motor systems. So yeah, I think that maybe... That's a really that, cool paper, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that would probably... And well, I guess the other thing is that fibers are organized in really clear, clear ways, you know, the, the rules that we had mentioned. Okay, so okay, that makes sense. Great. And then um, the opposite, any, any time you, you thought this was a waste of my time or this was a failure or this was, I don't know, not, not, a grunt, not great. I have to think about that. I'm sure there are many of them. <laughs> 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 I suppressed them all. Yeah, that's, that, that's I why think, I asked. I think the thing, though, that, it, well, I think what I would say is that... Um, if I had to say that in a career way to people who are developing their career and you want to say, you know, you keep going on and blah, blah, um, I think it was people's response to anatomy that was the most mm -hmm. difficult, right? To say, I actually don't care that you don't think it's important. I like this. I think it is important and I'm going to move on. So, so we were this has happened like two or three times in my career once I was re I had a review grant it was triage initially uh, because the people at that time the fashion was to do EM and understand really whether 
this receptor was here and this general tracing was just not really important anymore. Yeah. Um, this is before imaging. And, yeah. you know, blank out said, you should change and do EM. I said, I'm not an EM person. I'm not going to do it. And this is what I want to do. And this is what I'm going to do. Um, and I got through that. Um, and then, um, then the then the other is that you know when imaging came out, it says you know you're done. You're never mm -hmm. going to do this. You know, you know neuron. I will tell you, neuron nature neuroscience still will not take any of my papers because they're descriptive, okay. and they've been told. I've been told that. I see. Okay. However, they do ask me to write reviews. <laughs> 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 they won't take the. You know, yeah. I've. You put a so lot of papers a, there, very, and they'll say, very, I don't yeah. do it anymore, of course, but they'll say, it's too descriptive. We so know it's important. Yeah. It's a very important, uh, very, very uh, interesting point you're raising. I, I think in the foreword of the <coughs> amazing book called Brains Through Time by Streeter, um, it's about anatomy, but, you know, how they develop over time uh, phylogenetically. They have a whole section about exactly that, descriptive versus hypothesis hypothesis-driven science and was the first time I really realized there's you know these two things and they they made the point that the whole field of astronomy would be descriptive right you can experiment on, on a star there's a lot of these that our current focus on these hypothesis-driven things can be uh, detrimental to the field as well if we only allow that, yeah. It's but it's it's more than just that. If if it was just that, maybe. But you know, a lot of the knockouts and the knock-in animals are just purely descriptive. They mm -hmm. don't know what's going to happen. They just say, "Oh, dopamine receptor. That's really cool. Let's knock it out and see what yeah. happens." That's descriptive. Sure. But that's accepted. I see. Okay. So it's not that kind of you know. We need good description in order to develop a hypothesis. Yes. So I've learned. You know, you have to figure out how to work the system. I've learned to make a hypothesis out of something that isn't a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I hypothesize that um, Area 24 is going to project here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I now have a hypothesis, you know. Yeah, it makes sense. And, you know, like, okay, it's, it's, it's part of what, what people want. Yeah. But, but the reality is, if you look at really good science, the only thing, the thing that comes before the hypothesis yeah. is really good observation. Absolutely, yeah. I couldn't agree more. So uh, you mentioned advice for young researchers entering neuroscience. Um, so be persistent is maybe one thing. Do you have other advice that you would give? Yeah. Um, I think the other thing I would say is that there's a lot of interesting things in science, a lot of interesting directions to go, but you have to be, you have to end up doing something that you will enjoy doing every day. So every science is very tedious. There's mm. tedium in everything. And I remember doing physi electrophysiology. I went to a Cold Spring Harbor course. I thought it was amazing. Mm -hmm. It was so cool. But I knew I could never do it mm -hmm. because fiddling with those rigs was just not something I wanted to spend my time doing, yeah. whereas looking under the microscope was. And so I think that finding something that you really um, not only intellectually love, but fits your personality yeah. and what you, you know, how you like to organize your day, et cetera, et cetera, I think is really important. And the persistent stuff, I think, is 
you know, it's it's this cliche, follow your heart, which mm. I hate yeah. like anybody else. But your heart has, you know, you have to have some fundamental reason for that. And sure. when you do, I think that you really need to push through all the negative things you'll get. Any advice for women in the field? Yeah, what's well, the same advice? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think, don't, you know, it's the same thing everyone always says, don't punish yourself for your personality. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're just not an assertive person, that's okay. I think that, you know, there's a lot of push to be assertive and to be like, you know, pushing yourself and so yeah. on, but, you know, you have to accept your personality too. I think that this, you have to kind of balance yeah. that. Accept your personality and also try to move outside of it a little bit. Yeah. But, um, I think there's a lot of frustration with women who are quiet and mm -hmm. maybe more reserved and that's the way they were brought up or yeah. maybe that's their personality um yeah so makes sense what do you think the future of the field will look like anatomy uh, or neuroscience neuroimaging whatever you want to talk about maybe anatomy is the most interesting one well i i still think that there's so much to learn in the basic anatomy some of the techniques that are coming out now are fantastic like these right. you know where you really can see you know so we have some pathways and so we have to laboriously carry it out uh, chart it out but you take this whole slab and you can see the fibers just going mm -hmm. through the slab it's just it's just really nice Nice. Um, I'm not sure that's what your question was. What was your question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe if you, if you were to paint a broader picture, what will we do in 20 years? You know, what, what, is, the, what is the future of anatomy going to look like? Is it going to be, I don't know, simulations or new, data, new techniques? It's hard to forecast these things, I know. But, you know, what, what would be your dream to have in, in 20 years? Well, I think as a, um, a network, to be able to, to, to really visualize a network in 3D with all of the components to yeah. it, um, yeah, I mean, I think that would be... Be great. Okay. Any missed opportunities we are currently having in the field, things we should be doing but are not doing enough? I guess anatomy is one. Well, in a general way, I think science is just um, too technique-oriented, okay. too new tool development-oriented, and there's not the um, intellectual, I think, there's not as much intellectual uh, investment. People, I think that um, don't have enough time to think about their data, don't have enough time to read the literature. Something I wanted to circle back to in the beginning, you said that that the anatomist had back in the day had the luxury to do yeah. that, right? Was that so? Why why would you not have that time now? Just because of the pace of things? Or well, the pace of things. The, the pace of things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to. You know, the, first of all, you know, administrative things have just gotten kind of ridiculously complicated. Yeah. There are lots of rules and regulations, and so as a senior. Um, investigator is part, you know, is the head of the county. Is such so a huge amount of time that is devoted to just stuff that, you know, often is silly in my opinion, but um, and in everybody's opinion, not just mine. Um, yeah. And then there's a lot of pressure to um, publish 
from a scientist's perspective, there's a lot of pressure to publish in these high-end journals with lots and lots of different data. Mm -hmm. It all has to be very cool new tools. Yeah. The fact is that a lot of the old tools, you know, still, I mean, tracing is just great. Yeah. I mean, you know, I use methods that are 40 years old and yeah. we're still getting very good data and good papers and yeah. um, but there's a lot of pressure for people to to move faster mm -hmm. with new techniques that they don't really know how to use so um, yeah uh, anything we did not talk about I know we covered a lot and I took a lot of your time but any question you would have left me to ask or uh, that we did not or topic that you want, wanted to cover no I think you um, covered um, everything um, was it was my pleasure. It was fun.